Morning, everyone. There we go. Cool. It's nice to see you. We can occasionally respond to one another during sermons, even though we are an Anglican church, we're sitting in pews, and it's a little bit awkward. I don't mind if you're excited and want to make a tiny bit of noise, but please don't shout at me. We're going to carry on with our new series. With our new series, it doesn't feel so new anymore. We're week three of The Real Deal, looking at real discipleship. Uh, for those of you who don't know me so well, my name is Josh, one of the associate ministers here. I'm married to Amy, who I believe is in one of the kids' groups at the moment. We've got Sophie, Ezra, and Phoebe, six, four, and two. And we love being part of HDC alongside you guys. I wonder, who do you think of when you think of a person with great faith? The evangelist J. John over the last year or so has written a monthly article called Heroes of Faith, these people of great faith. He's written about people like John Newton, Rosa Parks, John Stott, C.S. Lewis, Corrie Ten Boon, and the first one he wrote about is our very own William Wilberforce, people of great faith. But I wonder when you think about people of great faith, who would you choose today, right now, Who would you think about? Would you think about the person who quits their job to go and be a missionary? The person who goes out street street preaching and healing? Maybe the person who gives their money away or somebody who becomes a Christian despite being rejected by their family? Who would you say is someone of great faith? I think if you'd asked Jesus the question, one of his answers might have been from our passage last week, the Canaanite woman. In Matthew 15, verse 28, Jesus declares, woman, you have great faith. But in the passage we've just had read to us today, we've got two very different faith responses. One of no faith and one of little faith. So first, the response of no faith. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says, when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus, they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Quick side notes. Out of all of the religious leaders in the Bible, who do you think are the grumpiest? It's the Sadducees. They are sad, you see. (laughs) Sorry. It's the only joke that you're getting, so don't worry. You can rest assured now. But whatever is happening here, they're trying to test Jesus by asking him, for a sign. And I mean, they've already had loads of signs coming up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has fed thousands of people and walked on water, so he has power over nature. He's healed a man with a shriveled hand, the mute have been speaking, the lame have been walking, lepers have been restored. It's clear that he has power to heal. He's forgiven the sins of the paralytic man, so he's claiming to have power to forgive sins as well. He's cast out demons, so he seems to have power over them. He's even brought the dead back to life, showing power over death. How many signs do you want? And he's speaking to a group of religious leaders here, some scholars, many businessmen, people who for a living will have to analyze, work out, deduct, use their minds, and yet it seems that they are not using their minds very well here. Verse 2 of our passage, he replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Essentially, 
You can use your brain for other things, but you seemly, you've, you've completely missed the point in who I am by asking me for a sign. The irony is, especially the Pharisees, they, this isn't their first interaction with Jesus. They've been following around for a long time. A lot of those stories that we just recapped from the Gospel of Matthew, they were there for those. They saw them, and they don't discount the opportunity for the miraculous. That's not part of what the Pharisees stood for. But yet they seem to be missing who this Jesus might be. They're not looking at him with the eyes of faith. And we look at the world and we interpret it. There's a, I'm sure a lot of you, when you're thinking, looking at those verses, can think of a saying that people say in our world to do with whether it's going to rain or not and what the sky might look like if it does or it doesn't. And we should do the same when we look at Scripture. We should be deliberate about interpreting it. We've heard as well just now the list of what Jesus has done up until this point. And I wonder what conclusion would you draw? What conclusion do you draw? They've been drawing the wrong one. Jesus then carries on speaking in the next verse. He talks about one more sign. There will be one more sign, the sign of Jonah. And we talked about Jonah recently in our Vision Sundays. We, we looked at this story. We looked at this story of Jonah going into a whale and three days later coming out and, and going and, and doing the mission that he was called to do. And actually, the reason that that Jesus uses this, the sign of Jonah, is he's speaking about himself. He's speaking about his death on the cross, but even more so three days later, his resurrection and all that that means to us, that he will come out of the other side victorious. That's the sign that he's speaking about here. Jesus is giving all the signs that the Pharisees and the Sadducees need to respond, but they say, prove it, rather than look with faith. They have cynical skepticism, rather than faith-filled hope. So for us, sitting here, maybe we are here today and we're exploring faith, and we prayed about Alpha a little bit earlier. That's a great way to explore faith and to continue looking. Maybe we find ourselves coming out of lockdown with, with no faith. We've become a little bit more cynical, a little bit more skeptical. Jesus warns the Pharisees and the Sadducees fairly fairly deliberately in this passage. He talks about them as a wicked and adulterous generation. My encouragement to you is to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith and not with cynical skepticism. He says, all the signs are here. It's all recorded in the Bible for us to look at now. We often hear people say something like, I believe in God if only he gave me a sign or I wish I had your faith. Can I encourage you this morning We've been given all the signs that we need, so investigate it. Look at this sign of Jonah. Look at who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's done for me and what he's done for you. So Jesus saying to this, he's talking about that, and he says, have faith, interpret these things correctly. I wonder today, have you decided that Jesus is who he says he is? That he died and rose again? Do you believe the sign of Jonah is something that is real? Well, then you've decided to have faith, whether you realize it or not. Not just the reality of something that happened thousands of years ago, but the ramifications of that thing for our lives today. If he died and rose again, he's God. And that should change and shape everything in our lives and our approach to everything in our lives as well. So that's the no faith response, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. How about the little faith response? the disciples. It's a response of confusion. Jesus begins speaking about yeast and they just don't get it. 
They chat with each other, and Jesus has to come in and correct them. And here and so often, we should remember, we probably wouldn't have got it either. We think, oh, silly disciples. But actually, we probably wouldn't have got it either. And even if we would have, it's our predisposition as humans, I think, to be people of little faith, like the disciples. We've got to say, actually, I probably need to think about this. Let's just define yeast for a minute to help us as we unpack that part of the passage. It goes into dough to make it rise. Yeast makes a really big difference. This is a a picture of what happens if you don't put yeast in your bread maker. That's way smaller than it looks. It's really thin. It was very, very dense. It wasn't very nice to eat. Amy did eat quite a lot of it. She doesn't like things going to waste, but it really was not very nice. And actually, it was was incredibly dense as well. Yeast makes a massive difference to bread. And like this bread roll, the disciples were also, I suppose, in some ways being a little bit dense. You can imagine that conversation that they were having. It it says in verse 8 that they had this kind of discussion amongst themselves. You can imagine one disciple saying, hey, Peter, you ask him, will you? Ask him what he means by that that yeast thing. Ask him. And Peter's going, I got it wrong last time. You you ask him, Andrew. He's already decided I should be sticking to fishing. And he's like, no, not me. Um, I think Thomas is the food guy. Thomas is like, no, I'm the money guy. Send John, he's head of the baking department. You can imagine this conversation happening between disciples, can't you? But actually, probably the root of that is that they're fearful. They're fearful, probably like most of us, they haven't learned to totally trust in Jesus. They're using guesswork, earthy knowledge and reasoning to understand something that needs Jesus to help them. It's beyond that. So let's look again at what they did. Verse five, when they went across the lake, The disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they had this discussion. Is it because we didn't bring any bread? And later on, we see in verse 12 that Jesus explains. He says to them, I'm I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. How does Jesus describe his disciples in verse 8? He calls them you of little faith. So why is their faith so little? What can we do about it? What does Jesus say we can do about it? I've got two things I want us to look at that maybe can help us to be people not of little faith, but of great faith. Jesus says in verse six, be on your guard. Be on your guard is the first thing that I think we can do. We can be on our guard. You'll notice that actually from verse four to verse five, there's an interaction with religious teachers and then there's an interaction with his disciples, but they travel on a journey together and Jesus addresses the issue immediately. It's clear that Jesus really cares about what he is saying to his disciples here. He doesn't let time go by. It's the next part of the story. A member of staff this week described discipleship to me as walking in his dust, walking in the dust of Jesus. And I think what Jesus is worried about here is, is people not doing that and walking in the dust of somebody else and following someone or something else. It's serious to Jesus. And I think it will be serious to him right now for you and I. I don't think he'd be any less urgent, but I do wonder whether the, some of the warnings that he would give might be different today than they were back then. So maybe we ask the question, what is our yeast? We look to interpret the signs of the times. What we should be on the lookout for. In Jesus' time, there was every reason to listen to the religious leaders and not Jesus. He was the new guy. They were the ones that had always been the people that you go to for authority. He was the imposter. But I wonder now whether we're actually more at risk of the yeast of our culture, what we let form and transform us. 
You know, with yeast, we've already said a small dose pervades the whole batch. It's like yawning. One person triggers the whole room, don't they? What is it that spreads like wildfire, that spreads like yeast, that affects all of the dough? It's culture, ideas, ways of thinking, perceived priorities in the office, in sports teams, in Hollywood. We're being warned against an attitude to avoid, a faithless attitude to God. And actually, so much of our world has this attitude and the priorities that follow it. We are not being disciples so much by religious opposition as maybe current culture. What is reigning in our world that doesn't line up with Jesus? We're called to be on our guard. What should we avoid? What contagious emotions or ways of thinking are there in our culture at the moment? I'd say there are many. Any patterns of thinking that don't conform to God's design? A few that have come to mind uh, preparing for this. Fear and worry. Doom and gloom over the future. TV shows from Black Mirror to Squid Game. Entertaining, but they can lead us to question authority beyond a healthy skepticism of power. And ultimately... Question God's better story of a hopeful future for each and every one of us. As we think about the future, possibly with fear and worry, does this set our priorities out of kilter? What do we spend our time on? What dictates our big life decisions? Is it, Jesus, what do you want? What do you think? P.S., I'm willing for it to not be what I think or what I think my best laid plan should be. I'm willing to listen to you, to do what you say, is best and not what I think is best. We're called to be on our guard. Maybe judging others, forming an opinion too quickly, whether on people in the news or in our own circles, sharing it too eagerly. It's hard not to chip in with the weekly gossip, isn't it? But it fuels the wildfire. It spreads the yeast. Also, maybe you're worried that people are doing that to you, that they're judging you. And so you pivot you change your opinion slightly. You change the way that you might approach a situation. You act differently as a result to worrying about people judging you in the world around you. What pressures do we give in to? People have opinions, don't they? And they quite like sharing them sometimes as well. And that's going to happen in our life. But so often we take the opinions of others onto ourselves and we live in a way that says, I believe what you say about me and not maybe what the Bible says about it. And it happens without realizing. What is success? What is making it? What will make us happy, make us satisfied? How do you answer those questions? If your answers start with job, house, eventually moving out of London, kids, money, they're not terrible things, not necessarily godless pursuits, but actually if they're the answer to all those questions that we just asked and they are the only answer, and the most important answer, then they've become idols and therefore they're sin. The answer to those questions, both now and forever, only has one place where it can be found, and it's in Jesus, it's in him. The one who gives us the sign, the one who's told us who we are, who's given us a hope and a bright future. There is only one place, so be on your guard. Lots of what we've just spoken about now isn't inherently bad but it can still be bad yeast when it's not put in its right order, when it's not put with Jesus as the priority. But then maybe something that is just not good <laughs> is lies. An MIT study has shown that fake news travels faster than the truth, and it's because it plays on our emotions and tells the facts in a more compelling way, and the enemy 
knows how to spin a good half-truth. And so we should consciously avoid exaggeration and inaccuracy in both our consumption of the news, but also, as we look at the word, be thorough in seeking out the truth. What are we feeding ourselves? What information are we allowing in? I don't know whether any of you get this, but I get like a monthly reminder of my screen time on my phone. It might even be weekly. I remember the one that came in a month ago, and I looked at it, and I thought, gosh, that's an awful lot of scrolling I don't need to be doing. That's an awful lot of TV time on some of these TV ads that, that I don't really need to be doing. I felt quite convicted about it, and I've tried to put some things in place to make a change. And as I was thinking about this talk, I was reminded of that decision that I made uh, last month to try and be careful about what I'm consuming and thought, well, actually, whether I realize it or not, what we look at on our phones, what we look at in our days, what we spend our time doing, it forms us, or at least has the opportunity to do so. What am I discipled by? When met with opposing things to what Jesus would say, do we choose my truth or the truth? Do we choose what maybe YouTube or an Instagram influencer or whoever we kind of look up to maybe in a, in a worldly sense? Do we choose to just do what they say, whatever? Or do we choose to put it alongside a biblical reality of who Jesus says we are and who he says he is? The yeast of today's culture will time and time again tell you that you are something you are not tell you something is important that in reality is not. It will mess with your priorities, your pursuits, and your passions. Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy. Be on your guard. What we prioritize and give our life to, it affects us. It's the yeast that runs through our lives. And the reality is everything has potential to disciple us and to form us. It's not just accepting that culture feeds us the yeast, but applying wisdom and scripture to see what God's really doing. I'm reminded of the verse that Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, so be wise as serpents. Be wise. We're called to be on guard. What does our life center around in practice? There's a storybook that I read with my children. Um, it's, it's about a, a group of wooden people called the Wemmicks, and it centers around a character called Punchinello. And basically, in this world, they go through different struggles. And there's this one book about boxes and balls. And this little Wemmick, he has this really cool box and this really cool ball. And another Wemmick gets jealous of it, so he goes and buys a box and a ball. And this spirals out of control until the whole town are selling everything they have to buy more boxes and balls. The idea being, the more of them you have, the better you are as a Wemmick. The more important you are, the more successful you are, the more the world looked at that Wemmick with Yes, you're great. It spirals out of control, and it's not till the very end of the book that Punchinello goes to his maker, the character that's supposed to be God in this book, and asks what God thinks, and realizes that these boxes and balls don't really matter, but he has had so much turmoil up until this point. He's been caught in a system of de deciding to believe that something that wasn't important was, and it was really tricky. And there was a result who was completely broken at the end of the book and had to go back to his maker to be restored and to get the right priority reset. Being discipled by the world is exhausting. Putting importance in the wrong things is exhausting. Before this series, we had a sermon series on, on saved. What does it mean to be saved? And this here is what does it mean to be transformed even more? What is transforming us? We are all discipled by many things, some conscious, some not so much. So who are you being formed by? Being transformed is the outworking of our salvation. It's active like yeast. It makes something happen. 
making you do, not just knowledge, but religious action. Whatever we let be our yeast will be our action. Our yeast will reflect our yield, our out. We're defined by what runs through our hearts. And so how do we set the right foundation? Well, by removing the false yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, getting a bigger vision of who Jesus is for us today. How else can we get a bigger vision of Jesus, the aim of real discipleship? Well, we look back. We look back at what we know to be true to get a bigger vision of Jesus. Look back at Scripture and at what he's done in your life. And this is what Jesus does with his disciples in this passage. He says, don't you remember the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000? I've shown myself to you. I've shown what I can do. Let's look back and build faith. Let's look back and remember We can look back at our own experiences of God. So many of us, we can say, this is what he's done. This is how he helped me. This is how he's guided me. This is where he gave me peace when the situation did not dictate I should have peace. We forget, though, don't we? So it's important to be deliberate and to remember. Looking back at what Jesus has done for you in the big picture on the cross, that's for each and every one of us. Doing this is a foundation of becoming people of great faith. It's a result of real discipleship. So I like to get practical sometimes in talks, and this isn't a list that is the end of all lists. There's a few things that I thought of that I think maybe can help lay a foundation. But for you, you may apply this in different ways. Some of these will jump out. Some of them you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. We read God's word. I hope we all know what that one is. We identify who we are and who he is that lines up with Scripture. It will help us see the bad yeast in our world. And that doesn't sound like God. That doesn't sound like who God says I am. We make time to pray, to space to connect with Jesus each day, to hear from Holy Spirit, to deliberately be asking Holy Spirit to speak to us. We don't do it alone. You're you're part of a church family here. Welcome. Use it. We do faith alongside one another. Join a connect group Ask for a prayer partner. Find somebody that you can be real with about how, how the world is, is, is a struggle sometimes, about how life is a struggle sometimes. Get plugged in to church. We learn to listen in new ways, looking for Jesus in our world, looking for Jesus in nature, looking for Jesus in the way that maybe, maybe we want to listen to music, maybe we want to listen to scripture in a way that we haven't before. Faith-filled listening is a recipe for real discipleship. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I think I'm trying to say engage with God. Engage with God. Jesus is recorded saying the expression, you of little faith, four times in Matthew's gospel. Each time it's spoken to the disciples, each time they're fearful or concerned, and each time Jesus demonstrates that he's able to provide for all of their needs. He demonstrates that he Jesus is in charge, so they need not fear. And I'm guessing most of us are people of little faith, not no faith like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. No, we're trusting in Jesus. We put our faith in him, but there are times when we aren't living day to day totally dependent on him. We're not displaying faith like the Canaanite woman in last week's passage. There are times because of our surrounding circumstances where we're fearful and we don't trust Jesus fully. Perhaps at church or at work or in our evangelism. Maybe we're worried if we make a certain decision based on wanting to be like Jesus that we will miss out on a promotion prospect or miss out on forced out of a job or whatever. might have fear of that. Maybe we're fearful of inviting people to Christmas services in case we are rejected 
or we have ridicule put towards us, whatever the situation is, Jesus' advice is the same as he gives to his disciples time and time again. Be on guard against the yeast, the the wrong worldview, and look back and get a bigger vision of Jesus. A person was on holiday in Iceland and started to cross a frozen river. Pretty confident, faith was high. And as he walked along, he thought he heard a cracking sound, and he was frightened that the ice might break underneath him, so he carefully lowered himself, as you might, onto the ice, trying to distribute his weight more evenly in a hope that it wouldn't give way and he wouldn't fall into the ice beneath. His faith is wavering here. Fair enough, we wobble, don't we? When things are uncertain or scary, 20 minutes into this cautious crawling across the river, he heard the sound of a jeep appearing on the far bank that he was heading to. Without stopping the jeep, jeep drove across and straight back off the other side, sped past him. So the man, slightly embarrassed, but filled with a renewed confidence and great relief, got up and walked the rest of the way across the river. And so often in our lives, we're like that man sprawled out on the ice. If we're struggling to keep going for Jesus, struggling to live wholeheartedly for Jesus, struggling to depend on Jesus, the answer is to get a reminder of who he is. Just like the man in Iceland was reminded the ice wasn't going to crack under him, so we need to be reminded that Jesus is totally dependable and trustworthy that Jesus is the sovereign Lord and the saviour of the world, and that he will provide for all our needs. Being a person of great faith is not what is so great in me, but rather what is so great in the person that I'm putting my faith in. To be reminded and grasp hold again of who Jesus is. Let's come to our maker this morning with renewed great faith, the product of real discipleship. Can I invite you to stand with me? As we stand, let's bring ourselves into an attitude of prayer. I'm going to say a short prayer that somebody sent me that I just think fits really well with today's topic. And then I'm going to encourage us to respond personally to what we've heard this morning. Let's pray. What holds me back? Some earthly tie? A thirst for gain, a strange entanglement with life, a pleasure vain. Dear Lord, I cast it all aside so willingly. The path of true discipleship, I'll walk with thee.